All right, well, turn with me over to Genesis chapter 3. And um, I got 1 through 24. We're not going to get quite that far. Um, so we'll have to pick it up in our study next week. But the title is The Fall of Man. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we saw God's blueprint for the world. How Adam would serve the Lord. How Adam would be given a special partner. Somebody that was a helper that was comparable to him. If you weren't here for the study last week and you're married or you want to get married or you ever want to give encouragement to anybody that's married, I encourage you to go listen to that study where we, we just pull straight from the text of Genesis. What was God's plan? You know, the very first institution that God established after creation was marriage. It is his idea. So best to go back and hear what he has to say about how it should function. So we discussed that. Now as we move forward in chapter 3, this begins a section that I think you can take all the way through chapter 11. And in that section, chapter 3, we're going to see the rebellion of Adam in the garden. In chapter 4, we see the rebellion of Cain against his brother, Abel, when he murders him. In chapters 6 through 10, we see the rebellion of an ancient world, right? We see that the flood that came. And in chapter 11, there's that rebellion at the Tower of Babel. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll cover each of these as we go. But today, we'll get a portion of the rebellion of Adam in the garden. So verses 1 through 6 is where we're going to begin reading. And here we see the seduction that Satan uh, pulls over on, we, uh, on Eve and deceiving her. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but... Of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. In this seduction, in this deception that Satan brings upon the first people on planet Earth, he begins by questioning the character of God. I think it's important for us to know that every single time you've been tempted, I've been tempted, or any person down through the generations of humanity, temptation always as a question against the character and the nature of God. And that's what we see. We are introduced to serpent, the serpent, Satan here, as being more cunning. And, and that is our enemy. He is a cunning one. He is a deceiver. He is one that is shrewd and wants to try and lure and to deceive into sin. What does sin do? Sin produces death. That's what Satan does, has done. Jesus said he's come to rob, kill, and destroy. That's what he's all about. That's his plan. But he's cunning. He doesn't come to us and say, you know what? I want to embarrass you. I want to shame you in front of your family and your friends. I want you to be the laughing stock at work. I want the church to think, wow, we, he really, she really pulled one over on us. So what do you say? You sin. And then I'll just totally ruin your life. It doesn't come like that, does it? 
He's cunning and he is shrewd. And he comes questioning the character of God. Now, he doesn't come right out and say, God is bad, God is evil. But he does say in this statement, Has the Lord said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So, th this is where it begins by questioning the benevolent, kind creator. Oh, he doesn't want you to eat anything. No, no, no. He, 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 we can eat. But he said we can't even touch it, though. So now she's kind of getting into the game as well, because God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He said you couldn't eat it. So he begins to twist the word of God. She rejects it, but in the rejection, she also picks up a little bit of the twisting of the word of God as well. Because so now she adds something that is, goes beyond. And, and that is what religion does. It always goes further than what God has said. It always adds burdens. It always adds this weight. This is why Jesus said, if you're, if you're heavy, if you're burdened, if you're weighed down, come to me. Put, take my yoke upon you. It is easy. I'm gentle. It's gonna, it's my way of living is going to fit like a glove. It's not going to wear you out. So here we see God's character being questioned. God has revealed himself in these opening chapters as a kind, benevolent creator. That he's giving to man everything that he wants. He's giving him a perfect world. When the creation was done, God said, this is very good. This is a beautiful place. And man had the ideal situation. But Satan comes along and says, ah, he's holding out on you. He, he knows that there's more out there. In James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and the context of this is temptation, which I think is really important because that's what we're talking about here. But in the context of temptation, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Satan comes to tempt Eve and he questions the kindness and the generosity of God. James says, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from the Father. That's why I say every time we've been tempted, it's been a question against the character and the nature of God. God is holding out on you. God doesn't want you to experience this. God doesn't want you to do that because he knows if you do this, then you're going to really have this full experience and he doesn't want that. So he is trying to hold back. He's trying to press you down. But when you are convinced that your maker, your creator is good all the time and everyone with his ways towards you, then you can know when the temptation comes and you have the awareness from the Word of God and the Spirit of God who lives in you that that is not the road to walk down. You're not saying, man, but if I just did that, then I would really be able... We don't say that. Because we know that He is seeking to give us the very best. Every time we sin, we think God has held something back and we are going to go after this because it's going to provide for us. You know... Uh, when my kids were growing up, um, they would get their little allowances and, you know, grandma and grandpa would send, you know, a little dollar here for their birthday. So they would accumulate these, you know, little pocket change. But as soon as it came in, they always wanted to, to go someplace. So they got a dollar. They wanted to go to the dollar store. And um, I was like, you know, you should save this up. If you save it up, then you can get something better because that's not really going to be that great. And it's 
It's like, no, they wanted to go spend their money. They go and get a dollar store, dollar store toy. And, of course, it would break before the end of the day. And there would be tears and all the rest would, you know, happen. And I think that's the way we are sometimes. We're, we're, we are going to satisfy ourselves with dollar store type stuff. Spiritually and uh, physically and emotionally. When God is offering the perfect and the good. God's not holding anything back from you. Not a single thing. This is what the psalmist says, is that the Lord withholds no good thing from those that walk uprightly. If you're following after the Lord, He's not holding something. He's not keeping something back. You have everything you need for your life. So, temptation. Question the character of God. He said you couldn't touch. He's like, you can't eat anything, right? Like, you got to starve to death. No, 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 not that. He just said we can't touch it. No, that's not what he said. The other thing that we see here is that he promises a fuller experience, which is kind of, I've touched on this already a little bit here, but he promises a fuller experience. He knows, God knows, he's holding things back because he knows that when you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want you to rise to the top. He doesn't want you to have the fullest experience that you possibly can have. And this is, this is Satan to this very day, questioning and challenging. Oh, you know, you're made this way, and you've got to have these things, because if you don't have these things, then you'll never be able to be who you really are. So God is trying to keep you down. Religion is oppressive. God is oppressive. Jesus is oppressive. He doesn't want you to, to, to be able to be who you really are. No, he's, he's declared who you are in the Word of God, and he's made the plan that if you walk in that, you'll have the fullness of life. But Satan comes along and says, no, you were made differently. There's special circumstances for you. He's keeping you from having full expression of this life, and that is a lie. God is not that. He is the author of life. He is the prince of peace. He's come that you might have life and you might have that what? More abundantly. God is into you having more than you need. That your life would be an overflow. And so Satan comes in and says, now he's holding, he's holding out on you. You know, that, that commandment, that was given, it's, it might work for a lot of people. It doesn't work for you. You're different. And there's a fuller experience. But wait a minute here. They are in the garden and they are having fellowship with God. It would seem at will every day the Lord comes walking in the cool of the garden to be with them. Psalm 16 and 11 says, In your presence is a fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness is found in the presence of God. What Satan is luring them to do is to break the fellowship. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But in breaking that fellowship, they're not going to experience the presence of God the way they were used to experiencing the presence of God. Everything is going to change. And to this very day, we see that change. So, no, God is not keeping you from a fuller experience. He is offering you. A full experience as you obey him. Now Satan's methods are revealed in these next few verses, verses 5 and 6. And, and he uses these same three methods. Satan had, you know, um, Barney Fife, you know, he had one bullet, right, in his holster. 
Um, well, Satan's got three. Only three. Every time he comes to tempt you, he will only use one of these three bullets. He is, he's cunning, and he is a, decept, a deceiver, and he will seek to uh, twist you up, but he will only use one of these three methods. And what we see there, and, and really we could probably just look at verse 6 alone, because all three of them are right there. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. These three things. What are these three things? Well, John writes about them in 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So verse 16 gives you the three things. The three things. So... Not in that order necessarily, but first of all, it's the lust of the eyes. What is the lust of the eyes? It's the desire for possessions. And what we read here, back in verse 6, is that that fruit was pleasant to the eyes. She saw that, and she wanted that as a possession, something she could have. So Satan is a master at causing people to give up their faith or uh, give up you know, freedom and uh, liberty in order to get more stuff. I've mentioned it many times, but, you, you know, Madam Blueberry. I mean, this is the thing. She wanted to go to Stuff Mart, and she wanted to get a lot of stuff. The question was posed to her, how much stuff do you need? Which she said what? How much stuff is there? Lust of the eyes. I mean, this is the thing. She just wanted more veggie tales, if you don't know. The more and more stuff. That's what she wanted. And this is what Satan does. And how many people have given up their faith and their, their standing with God and with other people to go get more stuff? The lust of the eyes. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. The lust of the flesh. This is all about pleasure. The experience. And so Satan comes in. And what he says to her is this is good for food. The way this food is going to taste it's going to blow your mind. You've never tasted anything like this. It will, your taste buds and your mind is just going to be like on fire with the flavor that comes from this. And it's that, that appeal to the flesh, to have some experience, to satisfy something in the body. And you know, sexual temptation, and drugs, and alcohol, and uh, just pleasure-seeking, and thrills. And that some people just live for the experience they have in their body. This is all about pleasure. And the last thing is the pride of life. Hey, you're going to be like God. You're going to have this incredible wisdom if you eat of this tree. You are going to gain a position that you have not previously had if you will walk down this road. So here it is. Possessions, pleasure, and position. Those are the three bullets that Satan comes at you with and comes at me and has come at every human being who's ever lived. It's one of those three things. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Even when he came and tempted Jesus, this is what he was doing. Jesus had been fasting, right? Had, no, had, had, had food. And he said, well, why don't you turn these stones into bread? So here, this is that... The, you know, food offered for his flesh. 
He, you know, your body needs this. And then he offered them the kingdoms. Talk about possessions, right? He said, if you'll bow down and worship me, then you can have the kingdoms of the world. So that's, that's the lust of the eyes. And then he offered him that incredible standing and position he would have if he would just throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. It would be a show unlike any other. And as everybody saw him, himself throwing himself off and the angels coming and bearing him up and slowly setting him on the ground, man, he would have the recognition that a Messiah really needs to get the work done. You see how it is? It's always the same. I mean, with David and Bathsheba and his sin with her, it was the, the lust of the flesh to please himself. And we can keep on going. If you talk about Peter up there in Antioch having a meals with the Gentiles, not worried about the kosher laws anymore, eating bacon cheeseburgers with Gentiles in their homes until the people from down south came up. The Pharisees came up. And Peter was like, oh, if they see me eating a bacon cheeseburger with this Gentile, they're going to think poorly of me. And so when they came, Peter was like, no longer answered his phone. He was ghosting him on their text, right? He just was like, no, I can't, I can't meet with you. Sorry. And he was, he was being distant from them because pride of life. He was worried about the reputation he'd have. You, we could go through every single sin in the Bible, and you will put it in one of these three uh, bullets. Now, sometimes it's like rapid fire. Sometimes it comes at you in such a way that you can barely distinguish the pride of life from the lust of the eyes, from the lust of the flesh. And it's just like this massive onslaught that comes your way. But these are his tools. These are his methods. He's not going to use anything else. He'll dress it up. He'll make it sound different. But if you'll take the time to step back and discern it, you will see what is of the world. And he is the God of this world. He is a God of this age, and this is how he is luring people in. Well, as we move into verses 7 through 13, back in Genesis chapter 3, we see some of the consequences, the, the broken fellowship that came as a result of them sinning. So we'll read those verses together. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings, essentially loincloths. Clearly, they were not used to making clothes, right? Nobody chooses fig leaves. Well, what do you, well let's try these. Okay, yeah, try those. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, look at this, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, oh, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I've commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. What's that? It's not my fault. It's your fault. You shouldn't have made her because she's bad news. I'm just here to tell you she's bad news. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, no, 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 no. 
it's the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. Nobody is wanting to take responsibility for their own actions. Not a whole lot has changed, huh? We are good at shifting the blame. But what we really see here is the broken fellowship. They hid themselves from the presence of God. They were used to having this sweet time of fellowship. It's like, as we read, And the Lord came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, looking for them. It's like there was a regular appointment. The fellowship was intense. The fellowship was real. The fellowship was deep. They were created in the image of God. Remember we said that ability to interact with God and to fellowship with Him. And He comes to meet with them as they were used to, but now they hide themselves. They are full of shame. They are full of fear. And that is exactly what sin will do. The sin, sin will make you fearful, and, the, and sin will bring shame into your life. Like, nah. All right, drive 55 and a 25 and pass a cop, and I can almost guarantee you what emotion you're going to have. You're going to have fear. That's what you're, you're going to like, oh, I hope you didn't see me, you know. Fear. And you can apply this to so many others. Shame. This is how shame will come in. At work, you know, they've been cooking the books. They've been deceiving. They've been inflating prices. They've been doing things here and there. And, and, and you are like not going along with it, but you, you know it's bonus time. You know that a raise is coming up. You know that maybe it's, it's time for a promotion. People are leaving. And you don't want to be the person that says, you know what, this is just not right, this is deceitful, this is wrong, I can't do it. But, you know what, I can, like, I can get really righteous like January 1, you know. But, I mean, this is the end of the year. New Year's resolutions are coming around anyway. Everybody's doing it. I'm just going to go along with it. I'll keep quiet. After I get this, then, then that's when I'm going to speak up and say this is wrong. So you go along with it. But an investigation happens and you get pinned with the blame. Now you got to go home and you got to explain to your husband or you got to explain to your wife or to your family or to your friends, your prayer group, why you're asking for a job now. What emotion are you going to have? You're going to have shame because you, you've done something. And this is what Satan does. He offers, he entices with this ideal of an exhilarating you know, uh, experience, this uh, incredible position you're going to have. And you're going to have these possessions like nobody's ever had before. And you go and you indulge, and immediately you are met with, not exhilaration, you are met with guilt. You are met with shame. You are met with fear. Am I going to be caught? Am I going to be found out? I hope nobody ever sees or knows what's going on. This is what the enemy does. He lures you in, and then as soon as you do it, he whacks you over the head. He says, why did you do that? You're a terrible Christian. You're a terrible human. And now the condemnation begins to fall upon you. And this is what happened with Adam and Eve. You're going to have all of these things, and immediately they ate of it, and they felt the break between them and God. And to this very day, this is what's going on. Man is separated from God because of their sin, because of their rebellion against the Lord. Oh, don't blame Adam. You've got your own rebellion. I have my own rebellion that has lo a much longer list than this right here. We've all proven we would have done the same exact thing. And so a break in fellowship, a break in fellowship with God. And this is why we see the deep hurt in, in mankind. This is why there is that loneliness. 
Because the relationship is broken. You know, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you're just coming along because you know people wanted you to, we're glad that you're here. Welcome. But you know that, that loneliness you're feeling? It's because God is not in your life. He created you to commune with him, to have relationship with him. And until you walk that relationship out, you're never going to have that fullness. You're never going to know what he has intended. That emptiness, that restlessness, it's not simply because you need a new relationship or you need a new job or you need better clothes or you need a better car. It's because you need a better relationship with God. That emptiness and that restlessness. It's a flag flapping in the wind that says, get right with God. These are the things that point us back to the Lord. But it wasn't just a broken, uh, broken fellowship with God. It was also broken fellowship with others. Immediately, you can see that breach between Adam and Eve. These two that have become one, now all of a sudden they're separate. It's not like, yeah, we sinned. He says, no, well, you know, it's not my fault. You made her. Remember that? I hadn't sinned before she came along. <laughs> now that she's here, I have sinned. And you made her. God, I wouldn't have these. I wouldn't commit this sin if you didn't make me this way. If I, didn't, if I wasn't like this, I wouldn't do these things. No, 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 no. Don't blame it on God. It's the oldest excuse in the book. And it feels real. I got it. I got it. It feels really legitimate to you right now. But the serpent is more cunning than anyone. And he is a deceiver. And what you are thinking of God and the finger you, of yours that you have in the face of God, because of the way he's made you, because of the, the limitations that are around, you've been deceived. You've forgotten the character and the nature of God, that he withholds no good things from those that walk uprightly. So we see that brokenness, but there are other fruits that come from this rebellion in verses 14 through 19. Well, let's read together. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you you shall return. So the fruit of the rebellion, well, first of all, the serpent is cursed. Evidently, it walked the snake, walked uprightly in the original creation. And then the Lord cursed it, and it slithers on the ground to this day. Say, oh, do we really believe that? Well, 
I mean, this is what Scripture tells us. This is what the Bible tells us. I mean, I mean, honestly, if you can get past God creating a snake, is it really hard to imagine anything else? I mean, if God's able to speak all things into existence, then, then what is the problem here? Satan t- seizes upon this body of this uh, snake and speaks through it. I mean, it's amazing. Why is she not like, wait a minute, you're a, saint, you're a snake and you're talking to me. So it makes me wonder, and I'm not going to draw any deep theological conclusions, so you don't either, but it makes me wonder what the communication was like before the fall between the animal kingdom and man. We know that fear came in after the fall. So I don't know, you can have a, you know, a, a very low-level communication with animals based on their instincts, right? You, know, you talk to your dogs and your cats and get them to do these tricks. There's a, there's a low-level communication, what was it like before? Why is she not freaked out? Like, you're talking to me, and I'm walking away right now, because this is really strange. But, you know, God does speak through animals again, right? Balaam's donkey talks to him. Actually, Balaam's donkey preaches a sermon and rebukes him. So, God can do whatever he wants. So this is what we have. But what we do know is, do serpents slither along the ground today? Yes, they do. Um, We see something amazing about the relationship between this woman and this serpent there in verse 15. Proto-euangelion, the first gospel. Here's a first mention in Scripture. There it is, chapter 3, verse 15. It is It is not wide open, but it's a first statement about God's plan to redeem mankind through a man that would come through a woman. And that is Jesus. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, came and his hill was crushed as he hung upon the cross, as he went through the beatings, as the scourge was laid on his back, as the Thorns went into his brow. His heel was being crushed. But through that cross, Colossians chapter 2, that we read that Jesus triumphed over Satan, defeating him, putting his foot on his neck, saying, I won. And the gospel was fulfilled, or the good news was fulfilled there in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And this is what is being alluded to there in verse 15. But the other thing that we read, the other fruit of this rebellion, is that a woman would multiply her sorrow um, in conception and in bringing forth children. Well, that's true, too. Snakes crawl along the ground. Jesus died on the cross. And, yeah, I watched my wife have three babies. I am here to tell you that's a painful thing. Um, I would not want to be a woman. I am glad I am a man. I look at that, I'm like, well, there would only be one child in every family if it was up to men. That's, uh, let's, let's be honest, guys. We're babies. We are babies when we get sick, when pain happens, right? And uh, women are just troopers. Um, and that is real. There is that pain that exists. But also... What we read is that she would have a desire to rule over her husband, but he is going to rule over her. 
That didn't exist. This, this battle of the sexes did not exist before the fall. This is something that came in afterwards. Where that after the fall, she was going to want to call the shots, but the Lord is saying, no, he will be the one that will lead the family. And we see, whether you, whether you agree with what the Bible says or not about women being in submission to men, you cannot deny that the Bible is right, that there is this hostility that exists between men and women. Now, listen, if you're a Christian, hopefully that hostility is nothing but one more way to be obedient to the Lord, and you submit as unto the Lord, and I'm sure that is the case. But these things are real. This is what we see in our world. The other thing that we see is that now Adam is going to have to toil, and it's going to be, it's going to be hard. There's going to be sweat on his brow. We see that he's going to have frustration and irritation in this farming business. Before it was just it was wonderful. He was taking care of this garden that you wouldn't even call it work. But now it's going to be work. Now there's going to be toil. Now there's going to be labor. The next time you go to work and you feel a little irritated, next time you leave the job and you're like, this is so frustrating to work in this place. And the next time you're like so tired from laboring, you can just remember that the Word of God is true. This was the consequence. God did not intend for men to have these frustrating, toiling, burdensome experiences. Laboring, and you know, for the glory of God, yes. Take care of the garden, but not this. This is different. And most significantly, what we read there in verse 19, at the end of verse 19, he says, Dust you are, and dust you shall return. You're going to die. This is what God had told them in the very beginning, that if they ate of this tree, they would die. Now, they ate of the fruit, and they didn't die immediately physically, did they? But something did die immediately. Their innocence, their relationship with God. Spiritually, that death entered in immediately, manifested by them hiding themselves and putting on the fig leaves, hiding from the presence of God. But, but the physical death was something that, I mean, Adam and Eve are going to live until they're 900-something years old. But death does come. In the world today, we do not see it as God created it. We don't see relationships with Him the way it was created in the beginning. We don't see relationships with each other like it was in the beginning. We don't see a, a peaceful world. We see a world that brings storms and diseases and pestilence. And we see this animosity between the animal kingdom and mankind. We see a world that is full of corruption. We see evil people doing evil things. None of it was God's idea. All of it was warned against. Don't do this. It will bring death. It's hard when you know somebody and they end up getting a, a cancer or some other sickness or some other disease, maybe some incurable disease, or a loved one passes away or a friend passes away. It never feels right. It never feels like, yeah, that, that's a good thing. It never feels that way. 
It always feels like an intruder that's barged into your life and has turned the tables over because it was never meant to be. God never intended that there would be hostility, that there would be a broken relationship between each other, but there would be a unity and there would be a love that we'd have for one another. If your reason for not following God is because of this broken world, i got news for you. Your disdain for this world is second to God's disdain because he spoke first about it. He's the one that decided to do something about the sin that produces the death. He's the one that decided to do something from the very beginning. Now, we don't see the world as it's going to be, but if you reject God because of this fallen, broken world that is a responsibility of man being deceived by Satan, you're getting angry at the wrong person. As a matter of fact, you're getting angry at the person who's angry about it. You're getting angry at the person who's going to change it and make it right. Don't opt out of it getting right. You've you've properly identified the mistakes and the failures and the, the brokenness of this present system. But why is it like this? You've assumed that God created it like that, but that is incorrect. But again, he's cunning. He wants you to think that God made it this way. So, well, who wants anything to do with a God that makes death and disease and, you know, famine? And who does that? Who makes that? Well, it wasn't God. This is what man brought. This is what Satan wants to do. He's the one that comes to rob, kill, and destroy. So if you're not happy with this world, then get on Team Jesus. Because he's going to make it right. Now, he's dealt with the first part of the problem, the broken relationship between God and you, God and me, God and mankind. He went to the cross, and he recreates us. We become born again, and he's coming back again. And when Jesus comes the second time, this world is going to be the way it's supposed to be. He's going to make it right. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more disease. He'll wipe away every tear. And in eternity, we won't see any of those things. So you may say, I'm an atheist because I don't believe a good God could create a world like this. Well, a good God did not create this world like this. You have a sense of of truth. You, You understand that it's out of place and it's wrong. That's correct. But your blame is not right. Just like it wasn't right for Adam to go, It's that lady. If you wouldn't have made that lady, I would have joined you on the walk. But I've got her. And you're, I'm not saying much, but you made her. And and, and today, people, I don't know God. No, there's God. And you know there is. It only makes sense that the creation would have a creator. I mean, we we look around and we see. We know there's got to be somebody who makes these things. No, it's an accident. It's a it's a it's chance. It's 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 a big bang explosion. Okay, what exploded? And where did it come from? Where'd the stuff come from for the explosion? Who struck the match? Who lit the fuse? Where did the information come from that landed in some, you know, mud pile, you know, out there in space, I'm eventually coming down on planet? Where did the information come from for all the cells to begin to split? Where, 
we talked about this in the beginning, but, you know, if you have information, it means there's what? An informer. Heart on the beach? Do you say random wave? Man, it's amazing. It's got two letters with a plus sign in between. That is a random wave. No. Something so crude and so simple as that tells you somebody put that information there. And we have all of this. There is a good God. He didn't make the world this way, but he's making it right again. And I would hope that you would want to be a part of it. Death enters this world. I encourage you on your own to, to read Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. We're going to close right here. We'll pick up the rest next week. But what we find in those verses is that there are two Adams. The first Adam brought sin into the world. We just read about him. The second Adam is Jesus, and he brings grace into this world, and he brings forgiveness into this world. Sin and death pass down through Adam, but life passes through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and he's provided that salvation for you. You do not have to be lonely. You do not have to be restless. You do not have to be empty. You can find that guilt and that shame being lifted off your shoulders today because God wants to forgive you. It is an amazing, listen, it is an amazing thing to be forgiven. We sang about it. Some of us have been believers so long here, we can't even, we, we hardly even remember what it's like to walk under guilt and condemnation. Because you know of the forgiveness of Jesus. We're so used to it, and that is a good thing. But let's never forget where we've come from. There are people that are riddled with every wrong decision they've ever made. They are, they're, they're just kidding. They have no rest in their life. The Lord wants to give you rest. He wants to give you peace. But you've got to come to Him. You've got to come to Jesus. You've got to repent of your sin and ask Him to cleanse you. Now, He died for your sins, but He's not going to force Himself upon you. He's not going to force himself upon you. It must be a free will decision on your own part. Now, I realize that makes some of my five-point Calvinist friends a little upset there, but I love you. But I believe that we must choose. Well, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I do too. I believe God in his sovereignty gave me choice. And I believe he gave you choice. It doesn't go outside of his sovereignty. It's under his sovereignty, but it's still real. Choose this day whom you'll serve come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your kindness. We thank you for a great world that you created, and we can see the beauty and the wonder of it. We can admire and cherish the friendships we have now, even in all of its brokenness. Lord, we thank you that you have a plan to restore, and it began with restoring us, and we look forward to the day you restore this earth. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be drawn back to you.